You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Um, it's sort of about reasserting your will in a world that doesn't want you to have willpower over what's happening to you. Um, and I think for what we call extremely marginalized communities, like the queer community, right, and, and not just the women within the queer community, I think that that can be a very intoxicating idea, um, and rightfully so. Hello and welcome to Drinks With God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. All right, yeah, for this episode, we're going to be passing the mic back and forth. Um, we're recording at Otto's Shrunken Head, which uh, I will put a link to and about in the description because it's a fantastic place. But today, we are going to be having a drink with Zev talking about queer culture and occultism and how those two intersect. Which, as I was just describing before we started recording, I just kind of see on the periphery and I say, if I enter this me- this uh, whole intersection, I'm probably going to just make an ass of myself and make everyone angry. So, I generally don't know too much about it, but you, you've both been a, you've been an observer for this for a while on a whole lot of levels. Why don't you, why don't you just uh, tell us why we should, why we should be talking to you about this. I don't even know if I'm the person to talk to you about it, but, but here we are. Um, I, I think you, you saying, if I start talking about this, if I wait in the three and a half, people are going to get angry, uh, kind of misses one of the important points of it, which is it's about people being angry. Um, so a little more on my background with queer, being queer, being aware of occult things, uh, it's mostly come for me through different experiences in different music scenes, um, growing up in the 90s where <laughs> that's just something that you glance off of. Who doesn't want to be in the craft, right? Um, but, uh, I, and I'm seeing so much of a resurgence of it now with Instagram witch culture. Um, and I think there are kind of two parts to it. That I, I see a lot of queer interaction with it, with sort of, there's witch sort of aesthetics, right? The sort of more secular, um, it's about a look and about decor and about a kind of a persona and then there's I think actually the kind of political queer identity side of it and the two intersect because obviously you have to be able to recognize people in your subculture but um, so I I think it's kind of those two things the political side of it which is probably the more interesting side for a lot of people um, I think it comes from the idea of what the occult's is actually, you know, what it's about, which is uh, to pull a DSA-style line. It's about direct action. Um, you know, historically, involvement with what you might call witchcraft or just occult, occultism, ritual, all of that stuff, magic, comes, um, you know, it, it comes from a very understandable place, even if, like me, you are a very secular, very non-religious or not a very atheistic person. Um, and that's 
you know, the idea of opposing authorities, right, historically, such as the church, such as, you know, a more patriarchal kind of controlled system of communing with divine uh, entities, right, and taking that power back for a general population, for minorities, for women, right? There's that whole side of it in a lot of different cultures. I read a lot about that. And then there's also the side of it where, um, you know, not only do you get a direct line, but then the idea of being able to directly influence events. I mean, who doesn't want that kind of, you know, sort of direct say in things? Um, It's sort of about reasserting your will in a world that doesn't want you to have willpower over what's happening to you. Um, And I think for what we would call extremely marginalized communities, like the queer community, right? And and not just the women within the queer community. I think that that can be a very intoxicating idea, um, and rightfully so, and a, and a very a kind of uh, powerful agent and um, a very, very beautiful-looking gateway for a lot of people to feel like they're being assertive, they're taking control, all of that sort of thing. But it comes with this sort of, you know, mysterious, dark, powerful package. Um, and that's that's great. I mean, that's appealing. I, I certainly understand it. I see how it's made its way. Again, you know, I'm coming from a more secular side of it. There are people who are actual witchcraft practitioners. Um, I, I think you've talked to some of them, maybe. Or, yeah, a few of them. You've told me you have. Um, and I, I, you know, my interest in it is kind of as it's similar to you, it's sort of a an outside observer. You know, there's this phrase uh, in a lot of political movements like fellow traveler. Um, I joke with people. I'm a I'm a an ethnic Jew who is non-practicing, and so what I say of uh, sort of occultism is um, that oh, I'm just ethnically an occultist. I'm, not, I'm non-practicing. Seems to be a good line that resonates with a lot of people. So, um, anything you'd like me to go on? Um, well, yeah, just kind of bouncing off that whole um, dark, mysterious thing. You'll, I've definitely noticed a trend where a lot of people seem to jump into this, or it seems to be a thing that most prevalently happens in someone's life when their sexuality starts happening, when they start trying to define who they are anyway, which is why it, personally to me, makes sense why you'd see it, like the whole queer witchcraft community, that intersection just being its own whole society societal thing um could you speak to that in any way maybe about how the whole yeah discovering your own sexual identity is going to be a part of discovering your own your own personal magic your own personal willpower i mean i think it's about uh, first of all it's just for a little background i mean this is a primary focus of mine both in academic work that i've done in uh sort of long-form writing and, and kind of journal you know sort of op-ed journalism that I've done, but also in fine art that I do. I mean, this is sort of, the, 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 a lot of the thrust of my whole thing is this, which is um, the idea that if society makes your identity monstrous, this identity that you come to and that should be a, 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 you know, a place of power for you, one reaction to it is the assimilationist one, right, which is far less sexy, <laughs> um, which is, oh no, of course I'm not a monster, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. And then the other side of it is to say, well, I'm going to be this beautiful, powerful, strange other to it, to, to kind of go all in on it, right? To lean in. And I think that that's where that dark, mysterious, otherness, beastliness um, is so appealing as a, as a way to explore if people have made you other and to, to find your beauty and your power in things 
on your own terms in these non-assimilationist terms um and i i certainly i see that myself i felt that myself i certainly see how that appeals to other people and i think that that that's that's kind of what you're talking about right that that's sort of where those two things connect uh yeah i think it's um it's reactionary but in a great way when you search for your identity so if you're kind of you know you're, you find yourself as part of a group that is <laughs> driven out of the village with torches on the regular um you're going to snap back at the villagers in your in your way, you know, um, and that can feel less like capitulation, right, to a norm that wants to excise all the things you found in yourself that feel genuine and important, um, and a way of kind of embracing that and then turning it around. Now there are way more, you know, complex writings and thoughts on this, um, certainly that have been done academically about. Is it really a healthy kind of rebellion if you're working within a system where you're accepting people's monstrousness as it's labeled on you? Is what what kind of complicated power and self-image does it do? I mean, I do a lot of writing around this. I do a lot of artwork around this. Uh, but just for sort of this, the, the sort of surface level of this discussion, yeah, I think it can be really powerful for people. Well, I mean, we don't have to stay on the surface level. Let's go a little bit deeper. You've done a lot of work personally, and I am going to, of course either ask you to list or like get a list from you later for uh, further reading for the audience but in terms of your own personal ideas and work is there anything that you'd want to you know here's a soapbox jump on it <laughs> what do you have to say for yourself <laughs> what do i have to say for myself oh no um i mean i can certainly soapbox for myself uh, i uh finished rapping last year and now i have circulating in film festivals a short film that I did. You know, I work have worked both in print comics and now in short animation and hopefully in comics and other medium again, uh, very much within kind of the edges of the horror genre, right? It's always been of great appeal. And I, I think, again, horror exploring what the monstrous is and how it can be a complex source of power is a great appealing theme for me. So I, uh, I finished a film. I, I trained as a 2D animator. Um, and I made this short called Beastly Things. I, I dropped the beastly word earlier. I think that's why it's on my mind. Um, and uh, this short that I've made, which is not available online yet, since I'm on my soapbox, but is circulating at festivals, um, has its own Twitter account, beastly underscore things. I think I deserved it without the underscore, but, you know, people get there ahead of you. Um, and in the film, I explored, you know, in a very basic, very accessible way, you know, whether or not taking on the mantle of something monstrous is a sure way to get power or whether it's something that, you know, can erode your sense of self over time and whether it is something, you know, with its sacrifices and something that is more complex. If you take on the title of being the monster everyone keeps telling you you are, I think it can initially feel as many young queer people, I think, experience, as I experienced as a young queer person, it can feel uh, very empowering. It can feel like it gives you a certain kind of energy and a certain kind of armor, a certain kind of defense. But I think continuously thinking your, of yourself as something monstrous can have a, you know, a sense of personal erosion over a long period of time, or even a short period of time. Um, and so it is a more complex issue than just that which grants power um, and that's so easy and you know there's no fun to be had there creatively talking about that so uh, my film is uh, it was uh, done by hand hand animated uh, it's over uh, it's, I did over 3,500 drawings 
because I'm a really particular kind of masochist. You know, we all of our we all of our things, right? Animators are a very particular kind of masochist. We we hide behind professionalism, but we know what's going on. <laughs> um, so that's my my bit of soapbox. Um, I, there are other certainly other things that I could plug. I read voraciously. Um, if people are more interested in sort of the, um, sort of dipping into the social history of uh, how you know the the occult influences not just queer culture, you know, which certainly weaves in and out of these things. I don't really know of any readings that are explicitly about um, queer culture as relates to the occult. So maybe it's a book project Milo and I should do. I don't know. <laughs> we should dip into it. Um, but I would certainly recommend. Um, there's a book called Gay Shame which is a collection of um, essays and notes given from um, the Conference on Shame. It was uh, done, I forget which university it was done at, uh, in the uh, later 2000s. Um, and it's a number of very prominent um, gender studies people uh, of all uh, sort of walks and identities talking about the idea of power and monstrousness and shame, shame as it relates to pride, shame as it relates to the body. And it, I think a lot of what I'm kind of glancing on here is included in those discussions. I certainly found it very enlightening. It's not a light read. It's, it's more of kind of an academic um, place to come from. But I know that there are plenty of people who would feel very comfortable tackling it. Um, I hear Witches, Sluts, and Feminists is pretty good. Uh, I forget that author's name. Um, but that seems to be making the rounds uh, well enough. Um, there's actually quite a bit of this discussion in another popular book that I just finished called Season of the Witch, which is about the occult as it has influenced the American mid-century history, 20th mid-century history of rock and roll, um, but has a lot of upfront discussion about kind of what the occult is politically and how it has appealed to different groups over time in a sort of broader sense and base um, and, ha- and bring some uh, anthropology into it. Um, that's always good. And then my final plug, which is um, from a dear friend of mine, Caitlin Doty, uh, who is best known to the internet the, as the internet's mortician. Ask a mortician. I call her a dear friend even though we were um, just very friendly acquaintances in Los Angeles. But dear friend because I feel very connected to uh, her death positivity movement and to the work that she is doing. Um, so it's not terribly presumptuous, I hope. <laughs> uh, she has just come out with a new book called From Here to Eternity where she talks about traveling the world to find to observe different death customs. Um, she comes from a, a, a place of being very, very knowledgeable and self-aware of being a white girl going to other places. And, and she doesn't look at it from the place of exoticism or from, you know, cultural baseline. And is very careful about, you know, discussion, presentation. There's a lot of discussion of the occult in that, and the occult is a way to oppose local authority to take back uh, a sense of power or even a sense of personal relationship, of grief in the case of a lot of people she's talking about for individuals, particularly for groups of women all over the world. Um, so that's a, that's a good one. From here to eternity, you guys should go buy it. Specifically into witchcraft and the occult, coming from the idea of getting your own power from yourself and creating like this kind of society... I use that term very loosely, obviously. Um, a society of people who are getting their own structure and their own strength from within, and then just kind of supporting each other through that. And they're all um, mar- otherwise marginalized people. I think I find that a very interesting dynamic, and especially since that is a structure, and that is a label, and that is a group of people that you could see across all cultures throughout history. 
Um, like I personally, I I know the the term and the group from you know, like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, um, ancient India. Like that's that's specifically where where I know them from. But in the terms of the modern day, where which is a term that seems archaic to the point where people just brush it off. But it's still, I think, a very valid idea. Um, I'm trying to remember where exactly I was going to go with my question. <laughs> I mean, I, I can say to what you said so far, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> Ellipses. <laughs> question mark. <laughs> um... So in terms of it still being a valid point and a valid practice, I think that the only question that I would have for someone who's observing it more closely than I am anyway, um, for the modern day version of it, is how do you think it's changed? Because it seems like so much of it has been struggling to try and stay the same in order to be legitimate. I see all these, like, for lack of better things to be able to bring up, BuzzFeed articles being shared around. It's been like, but look at how witches were doing it back then. I'm still doing it now. I still have my altar set up. I'm still burning sage. And, like, I'm not putting these things down. I've, I've got an altar at home, and sage is awesome. But I'm not saying <laughs> that these are the only ways to do things. And especially in a something as dynamic and constantly needing to change as the queer community... There's going to be change. There's going to be different practices. There's going to be new ways of finding strength in oneself, especially in this super-saturated information age. Um, any th observations of change? I, I think you kind of answered your own question, if that's a question. I was like, Milo, don't witch-splain to me, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, man, I'm kidding. Um, I, I mean, I am not a practitioner in the way that one might typically define but then what I would say is um, and I like your uh, your notes about Sage uh, blazing hot 14th century takes here on the podcast <laughs> altars, Sage are they for you, you know, thank you BuzzFeed um, well I think you know, anybody entering a practice that they, where they, that they are tempted by or entranced by but they, they, they feel like they need a guide or you know, how does one do Really, if the whole thing is supposed to be about, you know, your personal relationship with divine or your personal relationship with yourself, I think a more necessary question for change is not even so much about technology, but is about what constitutes ritual, what constitutes ceremonial practice. I mean, so I've, I've been a practicing artist for professionally for a long time, and, um, you know, I've also been a college teacher. This is going somewhere, I promise. <laughs> and one of my my favorite text that I liked to to give as a textbook to senior students on their last term who were graduating, who were in my portfolio class when I last time I was uh, teaching college, was um, a book by the dancer Twyla Tharp. It's very famous; a lot of people know of her. Um, and it's called the Creative Habit. Another plug for a really great book. It is. By far and away, the best text that I have ever been I've ever read about practicing work. It's none of that Julia Cameron stuff. There's no path. There's no God. It's it's really just cut and dry. Really great advice about 
that, you know, that the means doesn't exist and that it's about establishing habits. But habits in the way that she talks about them, and she's very successful, she knows what she's talking about. Habits, as she describes them, are really their own form of ritual. What is ritualistic practice? You know, a lot of artists, even ones like myself who are, you know, secular people, we would describe, you know, there are things that we do to get into the zone, right? There are things that we do to, you could describe it this way, access our own power. Um, what is putting on makeup before a drag show, if not its own form of ritual? You're channeling, you know, all the power that you need and all the pride that you might want to feel in a world that wants you to feel ashamed, strange, other. You are bringing that dark, mysterious energy into yourself. Is this not a form, could be loosely described as a form of occultism, a form of witchcraft, right? Think about athletes. You know, it's kind of going all over here, but... You ever seen, you know, you ever watch sports on TV or something? You see, there are athletes who do a particular thing right before they they try to take, um, you know, a certain shot at a basket or they, you know, they pitch a, you know, you see weird little gestures. This is a form of ritual, not even superstition. Some of it is, but it's a form of getting yourself into this centered place, even a form of a meditative place. So it really is all kind of mixed into this this self self-will, you know, connection to your own identity, and it takes on so many different forms. But the core of it is the same, and in that way, I think the idea of ritual doesn't need a guidebook. I'll take you on a, a memory lane trip. So, when I was a young lad, and didn't know I was a lad, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert, life, uh, <laughs> You know, I, w I would go to the local used bookshop. You know, where I grew up in New Jersey, in Montclair, New Jersey, we had at one point competing sort of occult shops. <laughs> it was very... But I, I remember you'd go to the used bookstore and you'd find, you know, your $15 copy of whatever... I think her name was Silver Ravenwolf, some white woman who had gone all shamanistic. You know, and she was writing, oh, you have to buy these candles that are this color. And, you know, and I always thought this was weird materialistic bunk. Like, that's not what it's about. Now you're just, you're buying into another system. If the whole thing is supposed to be anti-authoritarian, anti-authority, anti anti-system, right? Direct power, direct control, direct contact. Then what's the point of all of this, of, of codifying it? into? Now you're just making religion again, right? So I think to keep it real magic, um, real magical, no matter what form it takes, ritual has to suit the practitioner. Uh... As usual, very well put. <laughs> I, was, I was saying to you earlier, you're very good at hitting all the points in a very quick, easy-to-follow stream. It's almost like you've lectured before or something. <laughs> or something. Um, but yes, and I, it's amazing how many times I do a podcast, and it, I try really hard to not bring up the subject again of the one-second kink meditation, where it's just like... You're out in the world, you need to not hit, you need to not say something, and you just need to take that deep breath that's going to recenter yourself. Um, you need to, or like whatever you, little thing you need to do, like hit the table, um, uh, grab, your, uh, grab your neck, whatever you have to do, but those are also rituals, which uh, listeners will remember depending on which episodes you've listened to and which episodes have been... Um, published by the time you listen to this uh, will remember me saying that probably eight or nine times at this point. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to go deep into it this anymore. <laughs> but yes, ritual is an amazing varied thing. And um, 
So yeah, just watching it change, and especially like watching it be a specific person's thing, is fascinating. Especially because the whole system is passing down naturally because people's own personal need to rebel. I made a grabby gesture for the mic, uh, not seeing this auditory medium. So I, I, I kind of want to launch right off of that, which is, I think that all, what we're, we're circling around, which I, I do want to bring up as a point, is that this, I think this fills a fundamental need. And to tie it back into our general theme, I think it serves a fundamental need for people in general. I think it especially serves the idea of ritual, of wards of protection, of a way of being able to recenter in your identity is especially valuable to members of the queer community who constantly, by virtue of daring to leave their apartment, right, we find ourselves in hostile territory. The world is largely hostile territory. Sometimes, as has been my experience, unfortunately, sometimes even so called prescribed queer spaces can be hostile territory for certain kinds of people in the community. And it's a shame, but it's a truth. Um, and so... You can, I think you can see whether you're a member of that community or a member of any minority community or not. I think you can see the, the value in whether it's a form of on-the-spot carry-with-you meditation or whether it's some form of ritual. I mean, for me, these things all, again, speaking as a very a-religious person, but I understand that fundamental need in a respectful way, in a, in a, a non-judgmental uh, way. I certainly feel the need to center myself in chaos and aggression and to find those touchstones where you can reconnect with your sort of core self and feel who you are and feel and draw power from it to ward against shame, erosion, all of these things, against the erosion of the self, right? Um, and so I, I think it is very natural that not maybe specific rituals, specific ordering of, you know, drawing sigils or lighting certain candles or even burning sage... Some of that gets passed down because people want to, they want kind of like an inroad into this thing that may feel new or inaccessible to them. But really, it's all coming out of that same fundamental place of needing, um, needing a direct control and reconnection with your personal identity. I think that's something really fundamental that a lot of people can understand. And that, you know, even if you take more, uh, I don't know. Labels that feel less accessible away from it, it still really is the same core thing. We, at this point, I think that we're just going to keep beating a dead horse, because, like, there's a very specific truth to this, and I think we've said it from pretty much every angle we could at this point, aside from just kind of, like, uh, forcing the audience to sit down and listen as we, like, read aloud from our favorite texts on the subject, or, like, holding their eyelids open as we have them, like, watch a couple movies, uh yours among them <laughs> um, or like having someone live out personal experiences it's just hard otherwise to get these sorts of points across but um, I, we have uh, covered a lot of the points that I was hoping <laughs> hoping to, to, to bits of wisdom I was hoping that you were going to impart on the audience <laughs> um, but uh, is there anything else that you'd want to give to anyone um, is there it, w would you want people in contact with you? Um, should th should they or? Uh, yeah, I am uh, really easy to find on the internet. Um, I uh, I write criticism and all kinds of things, and um, I'm also uh, I, my name is the only one of my name in the world. So if you find me, it's me. <laughs> um, I am a Z Shavat, uh, so Z C H E V A T on Twitter. Um, come find me and bother me about occultism and ritual. Happy to talk. 
Excellent. And I'm going to make sure to put all those links to everything in the um, in the show description. And thank you again for coming on the show today. Thank you. And if you would like to come on to the show, please, please feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me on Twitter, on Facebook, through my email. That's drinkingwithgod at gmail.com. Um, please continue to follow us on social media. Uh, please continue to hit that subscribe button on iTunes, on Podbean, and now on Spotify, actually. And uh, continue to support all the other wonderful podcasts that we share a network with. Check out everything on our Redbubble page. We've got t-shirts, we've got mugs, we've got stickers. They say things like Manic Pixie Dream Nilist and Gay Sex is My Anti-Drug. Thank you for listening and stay weird out there. Mm-hmm.